0: Let the torch of freedom
1: burn. Welcome to the Intersection of Faith and the Culture. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach, serving here with David Barton and Tim Barton. David's, of course, America's premier historian and our founder here at Wall Builders. Tim's a national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders, and we're thankful for you joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate the fact that there are people all over this country that listen to wall builders, that study wall builders, uh, books, and 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 different programs, and they learn that history, they, that history that has been brought to life, but then taught in a way where you can go do something about it. You can actually act on it, and we're seeing positive results in local communities all across the nation. So thanks for listening, but also for being a person of action. All right, guys, Stephen McDowell back with us here in a little while. We're going to talk about some biblical economic perspective on this Thirty-three. Well, thirty-three trillion today. I think it's going to be thirty-four tomorrow, thirty-five the next day. I know it's not going up quite that fast, but it's getting it's getting close. I think we're at thirty-three point eight trillion now uh, for a deficit. And man, guys, at what point does it become wheelbarrows of cash? How fast does it just get out of control?
0: Whenever you allow this much debt, this is one of the reasons that history is really important. Uh, Because when you study history, you also study the economics of nations and you see what works and what does not work. And we're so separated from history now that it's hard to understand consequences without having lived through them. And so we're at a point where we're going to have a generation that's going to have to live through some hard economic times in America because they don't know the history of what happened in France or in England. They don't know the history of what happened in, in all these other nations who made the same decisions and they always work out the same way every time. And so that's that's the good thing of history is you can learn what works and what doesn't work so that you don't have to stub your toe and, and make the same mistakes. We're at a point now where the, we're just not able to do that. And, and people, because there is so much debt uh, personally and credit, other things, we just keep spending it. We haven't seen the the old axiom is the chickens haven't come home to roost, but they will. And that's what you see from history is it always works out. There's always consequences. You can't avoid them. And so it's really significant. And then even talking about biblical economics, you know, one of the things that I've started doing with groups, I've, I've done it for a little bit, but it's like challenge Christians. Okay. You know, the Bible applies to every aspect of life. So let's, let's be specific. And so there, there's six different type of, of taxes or economic things that we deal with in America that are also covered in the Bible and if you ask most Christians where they are, they kind of look at you with a blank face and it's like, I I, I don't know It's in the Bible. Well, if you don't know, then you don't know how to apply it. But the, the six things I can ask about, and the Bible either talks about the subject or the title, but minimum wage is covered in the Bible. Soar capital taxes, capital gains taxes, estate taxes, inheritance taxes, progressive taxes, and flat taxes. Bible has guidance on all of those issues. There's a lot of biblical economics and, and people really do need to know that
2: and it would keep us from getting into the problems we're getting into as a nation right now. And, and dad, even as you're saying that, I know there's sometimes uh, moments we say the Bible talks about this and people go and they look it up and they're like, I can't find that in the Bible. They'll look for commentary and they go, I can't find that. And so there are some people that would be critical and say that you guys are pretending like the Bible says all these things it doesn't say. Well, if, if you understand what a capital gains tax is, you understand what it is doing and then go read some of the parables where Jesus talked about, to him who has, more will be given. But to him who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. Well, well what does that mean? Because what does the capital gains tax do? It says, based on how uh, profitable right, your investments have been, well, the more profitable you are, then the more taxes you're going to pay if you try to take that out. And so, uh, well, that, that, that's actually the opposite of what Jesus taught in the parables of, of, of Luke 19, of, of Matthew uh, Twenty-five. That that those who were the most productive actually they, they were rewarded for their productivity because of what they did to get the productivity. And even as we say this, we've highlighted before that Jesus. If you study the parables in the four Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—there are more parables that deal with money, that deal with economics, than any other topic. And, and we certainly could could ask the question: Why does Jesus deal with that so much? And I think that Luke sixteen eleven is such a good explanation of why would Jesus talk about or use money as an example. And it could be because most people, right? whatever culture, whatever, whatever nation, whatever ethnicity, gender, it doesn't matter. Most people appreciate money. Most people want to have more money. We, we, we can relate on some level to money. Sure. That that maybe is why Jesus did some of that. But in Luke 16, 11, Jesus said, therefore, if you have not been faithful and the unrighteous mammon, that's money, if you've not been Faithful in the unrighteous money, who will commit to you the true riches? Who who will commit to your trust the true riches? What does that mean? Is Jesus said if if you can't be faithful in something that's not that significant, like money? Money doesn't mean anything in God's economy. God doesn't need money, but but if we can't be faithful in something that's not all that significant, how can God entrust to us something that really is truly significant? The the true riches of the kingdom? Well, as Christians, we should be seeking the true riches of God's kingdom. Well, what is that? I, I want the true riches, but if money is one of the measuring uh, metrics, one of the tools that God uses to be able to see how, how can we handle what God entrusts to us? Can, can we be a good steward? Can we be the well-done, good, and faithful servant? And if so, then maybe we have the true riches. This is why I think sometimes people don't understand the significance of economics, even as a Christian. And, and if we did, I think we would even maybe place a greater emphasis on learning to be responsible with money. It's certainly not what we're doing in the U.S. government right now. Uh, certainly a lot of problems. And one of our good friends, Stephen McDowell, is someone who has uh, written about this quite a lot. He's done a lot of research on this. Uh, and we thought, man, Steve would be a great guy to talk to about this topic for just a little bit.
1: All right, stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Stephen McDowell, our special guest today. You're listening to Wall Builders. Welcome back to Wall Builders. Thanks for staying with us. Our good friend Stephen McDowell from Providence Foundation back with us. Website is ProvidenceFoundation.com. Providencefoundation.com. Stephen, always good to have you, brother. Thanks for some time today.
3: My pleasure, Rick. Always great to be with you.
1: Man, I wish we could get um every member of Congress uh to go through your biblical economics materials at Providence Foundation. Uh we are desperately needing some uh, some plumb lines, you know, some 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 guideposts for what what works and what doesn't work. I'm in agreement with you on that for sure. <laughs> well, what are we at now 33 trillion that, you know, is on the books anyway. I guess we got a lot more than that that's just unfunded mandates, but um at this point we're not spending our money or our kids money. We're we're digging into the grandkids money it seems like.
3: Yeah, this is obviously a a violation of what the Bible teaches. Is really for our good, whether you apply it personally or you apply it uh, nationally. When a people live in debt, and this is really how our economy today is based on on debt, uh, you are destroying the accumulation of wealth and the well being of of uh, individuals and the nation at large.
1: You, you've taught this uh, a, a lot. Just you know, the more you go into debt, the fewer. Uh, Decisions you can make, uh, you know, it takes away your decision making and your and your choices. Um, I think they're saying now we may be, you know, hitting a trillion, roughly a trillion a year in interest. Uh, So if we have to spend that much on interest, I mean, even though of course we federal government spending money on things that should not be spending on, that's a whole other topic. Uh, But when you spend that much just paying on the interest of the debt, not even paying down the debt, you you remove the ability to do the things like national defense and the things you need to be doing.
3: Yeah, you know. Proverbs 22, 7 tells us why we shouldn't live in debt. It says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the servant to the lender. Or the New American Standard Bible says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And of course, the Bible teaches we're only to be a servant of God, not a servant to man. And when we live in debt, it puts us in subjection to man. And that's why... The Bible limits the debt that man can assume under God's law in the Old Testament. The maximum length of any loan was seven years because at seven years, debts were forgiven. But under the New Covenant, which elevates the requirements of the law, the goal is to have no debt at all. Paul writes in Romans 13 owe nothing to anyone except to love one another because the debt puts us, and subject to man, we become a slave of whoever we're borrowing the money from. And debt keeps us from building wealth generationally. Because in a Christian society, each succeeding generation should have more wealth than the one before. But, as you point out, if, if we're borrowing money, then we don't have the money to spend. We're not accumulating wealth we can pass on to our children, our children's children. It's, uh, it, it's going to the lender. And the way we do things today in our government is actually a redistribution of the wealth uh, from the productive to the unproductive. Is really the practical outcome of of, uh, of of what we do today when we deal with our debt.
1: Yeah, and and, and you know it seems like on that front that you know, when you run up the debt, you almost uh, collectively as a nation forget what you spent the money on, uh, the, the transfer of wealth that took place in a previous generation. You just have the debt and, and you got to find a way to pay it. And of course, it's going to be the productive that, uh, that, that have to do that. Um, what, what do you recommend for us to uh, adopt as, as basic principles? I mean, obviously not go further in, into debt. How do you get out of debt when it's this bad as a nation?
3: Well, of course, you know, when you spend more money than you take in, if that's personal, then you you got to borrow money or you run into problems to declare bankruptcy or something like that. But on a national level, when, when you spend more money than you take in, here's how we deal with it. One, you borrow money, and usually the na- national government may do that by issuing bonds or something like that. And of course you have to pay back the interest on those bonds and the value of the bonds. So we'll borrow money. We've been doing that, uh, uh, by the trillions, but you can only borrow so much money. So what our governments do today, we create new money. That's what fiat money is. Fiat means by decree. So the government decrees, we're going to have more money. And How do they do that? They'll open up the printing presses and print more money. Are really what we do today is put some more zeros on a computer screen and say, voila, we have more money. You can do that because once we established the National Bank with the Fed in 1913, it was, it's able to create the amount of money by the interest rates that they set. And so when you create new money, then you have more money that's bidding for the same amount of is, that's why we have inflation. So inflation is the false expansion of the money supply, which comes about because we spend more money than we take in, so you have to to pay for that somehow. And so inflation is is just the means of redistribution of wealth. It's the stealing from the productives and those who labor hard and save up cash. And because your the amount of money people have is devalued, you can't buy as much because your money is not worth as much because we've created a whole lot of new money. So to deal with the problem, one, we have to stop deficit spending. If, if we don't do that, then there's no hope at all because in the past 40 years, especially, we've had an exponential increase in deficit spending. That's just spending more money than you take in in taxes. So that has to stop. Uh, and we could do that. It's going to be very difficult because we're, we're addicted to spending more money than we take in. Of course, it's not enough just to stop deficit spending. Then we have got to reduce spending because we we're, we're, we have to pay off that debt. Um, and and, and this-
1: that let, let let me just drill down a little bit on the uh, on the stop the deficit spending thing. Because when I first start thinking about this as big as a problem as this is, my my immediate kind of path I go down is, okay, it's just it's just going to be painful. We're just going to have to deal with the pain that comes from making these hard cuts, just like we would have to do as a family or individual. Um, but I also start to think about the fact that, you know, the federal government's doing all this stuff it shouldn't be doing anyway, and that it's just truly wasteful, and that the states could do if the feds would just get out of the way. And so while it would be painful, there's also a ton of money there that that you could cut that, that wouldn't necessarily be painful. It, it, it I guess it'd be painful to the lobbyist and the federal employees that are uh, would have to find something else to do, But it, it and maybe that does become painful overall to the economy. But there's also just this jurisdictional issue and and this, uh, you know, just, just do what you're supposed to do and not all this other stuff. Um, and, and very few members of Congress talk about that because they don't want to make those constituencies mad. But then, and sorry to ramble on you here because you can pick any of this you want to comment on. And then you watch this guy in uh, in Argentina that just got elected president, <laughs> this this video that I, this is going around that I love of him, you know, all those national agencies that kind of like here need to be gone. And he's just ripping them off the whiteboard, the little magnets and going gone, gone, the national yeah. whatever of whatever, you know, and, and I'm like, where is that guy for America? So, I mean, what do you think about that in terms of just some big cuts that could be made by just getting back in, in the proper lane that government should yeah. be in?
3: Well, you're exactly right because two thirds of the money the national government spends is outside its jurisdiction. Wow! So you, you stop de- deficit spending. One, two, then you reduce government spending. How do you do that? Well, you eliminate the welfare state because seventy to ninety cents of every welfare dollar goes to bureaucrats. It doesn't even go to the needy. So you so you reduce the paying the bureaucrats. You eliminate bailouts and stimulus programs. We've done billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of those. You encourage development of infrastructure and private capital, but you also has reduced the number of government workers like the Argentine president's going to do. Because right now in the United States, we have about 25 million people work for the government, wow. about 15% of the total workforce. Wow. Yet, yet remember government doesn't produce anything. It performs an important function of protecting our property rights But it doesn't produce anything. And you could eliminate this somewhat painlessly. Just don't hire any new people. When people retire, I'm not hiring anybody new. And, uh, you know, maybe 20% of government workers perform a necessary function. I guess we could argue about that. (laughs) So, yeah, we could eliminate millions and millions of government workers. We could cut government p- programs and say, yeah, this is going to hurt some. But if we're encouraging the private sector to be productive, uh, then they can't, they're going to create new jobs. So it doesn't have to be that difficult. That's the great thing about biblical economics. It's productivity-centered. And so the private sector is the one that is productive, producing needed goods or services and a lot of jobs. And if you reduce taxes... then then the private sector is going to have more money for which to create new jobs and there are going to be plenty of work for people to do uh but but of course you have to have incentives for people to want to work right now our welfare state pays people not to work so hey why should i work the government's going to pay me to do nothing yeah we obviously have to to deal that that as well so we could easily stop deficit spending. Well, I wouldn't say easily. You're right. There's going to be pain, but we could stop it. We could reduce government spending and we could shift to a really a, a free market, a biblical economy uh, with hurt and harm, but we could uh, eliminate how difficult it would be if we just take the proper steps. But nobody, it seems nobody is willing to do that.
1: Is Is—is it a... I, I guess at this point, you know, we, we watch the swamp in, in, in Washington D.C. and there's there's a once in a while a bright you know bright light of hope that uh, that there's somebody there with enough common sense and, and biblical knowledge to bring back these principles that work. Um, is it a situation where maybe the pain does have to get so big that people will make the decisions, the, the the tough decisions that whether it's the inflation, interest rates, whatever? I mean, you know, do we have to have another misery index of the late 1970s to get a Ronald Reagan? Well,
3: though? it. You know, obviously, with the more and more government workers, government workers have an incentive not to eliminate their jobs. <laughs> so you got to put people that have principles inside. We're going to take the steps. We're going to stop government spending. Do something like the Penny Plan. You know, reduce just one penny out of every dollar the government spends. We're not going to hire any new new people during this time. We we're going to reduce taxes too because reduction of taxes. Uh, generally gives more money to the productive uh, sector, but it it it's it, here's the problem. Our government is only reflecting what the people do. Yes, our government's thirty three trillion dollars in debt, but the private sector. I think you know we've got over four trillion dollars in and mortgage debt. We have over a trillion dollars in in uh, credit card debt. So we have huge amounts of debt ourselves personally, and so our leaders just reflect what individuals are doing anyway, because economics began in the household. That's what the primary definition of economics is, is household management. So we've got to deal with what's in the heart of the people then we'll get rulers who have a understanding and conviction, yes, we're going to take the necessary steps, and the people will support them uh to to reduce the size of government, so it's going to take people of character and people of a proper worldview to pull this off
1: yeah, and and that fits with really everything else uh you know we it is the local solution that we can do something about, and the way you just described that, I love that because You know, we see these big budgets and this deficit and all this at the national level and we go, what can I do about it? Well, we can do more about it in our own households first and then teaching our kids to do better at that and and the people in our church and encouraging that at the local level. Like you said, if we do it and and then people will recognize like if they don't if they aren't even being taught this personally and, and living these kind of biblical economic principles out in their own lives, they won't recognize when government's doing it the wrong way, they'll just think, like you said, that you know we're doing it. Why wouldn't government do it? It's reflecting, and we're getting the government we deserve. So it does start with us, is what you're saying. I mean, we got to we yeah. got to get better at our own decisions.
3: And and when we recognize living debt free is liberating, see that I've lived with debt and I've lived without, and it's much more liberating to live without debt. And we have to recognize I will sacrifice now, so that in By later years, I will have great liberty and a greater accumulation of wealth, and I can pass it on to my posterity. But a lot of people, they just want to live it all. I want to have it all now. So we need to drive old cars. We need to not get any debt at all. And if you have to borrow money, you should only borrow it for items that appreciate in value, like a home. Don't ever borrow money for a car. Just buy, you know, a cheap car that will get you to work. I mean, so you're sacrificing, but then as you look down the road and as you, you live this out, you can say, I'm debt-free. I'm I'm not a servant and slave to any man. Then that will transfer to recognizing, hey, it's going to be the best for our government, too, because, you know, we, w- we want to accumulate capital in the nation over law lo- overall, and that's going to produce a huge, uh, uh, increase and in future generations. Man,
1: oh, I love it. Uh, I, I, again, I wish we could get you in front of every member of Congress, but what we can do is get you into more, in front of more of our audience. Get people to take this into their homes and teach it in their homes. So many good materials at ProvidenceFoundation.com dot com. Providencefoundation. dot com. Stephen McDowell. God bless you, brother. Always love having you, and look forward to getting you back to Patriot Academy
3: next summer as well. I good to be with you, Rick. God bless you.
1: That was Stephen McDowell. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us today. Back with David and Tim. Uh, All right, guys. So, I mean, (laughs) Stephen makes it sound so simple, but it really is, right? Like God's ways are not complicated. I mean, He lays it out for us. Uh, We just tend to want all the things that we want and uh, and don't uh, don't listen to His instruction.
0: You know, I was listening to Steve as he's going through the stuff and and talking about that. And by the way, I I just looked up um, online while he was talking. The average debt of Americans, what what the individual America owns, it is such a difference by generations. Uh, the, if you look at Gen Z or millennials or Gen X or baby boomers or silent generation, it is such a difference. For example, with Gen Z, uh, the average debt for a Gen Z is about $26,000. But if you go to Gen Y, which is millennial, the average debt is $116,000. I mean, what a huge difference per person. Uh, if you go to the Silent Generation, which is the oldest, the the great grandparents, it's about forty thousand at, at that point. So there's a lot there. And, uh, why does that occur? What happens with debt? And there were there were some things that just kind of really struck me. I'm going to hit them real quick. But one Ecclesiastes one eight says, "The eye is not content with seeing." And what happens is that's why window shopping is a bad idea. When you see something, you want it. And the more you see, the more you want. Which is why advertising works. When you see things, it causes you to want something, and you may not need it. So the other verse that goes to that, Hebrews 13, 5, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And so a, a lot of debt comes because we're not content with what we have. We see an advertisement. The eye's is not content with seeing. We want more. We want something greater. Another economic principle, economics 428, it says, work so that you will have something to give those who are in need. So that's the other thing is when we're looking at money, we need to also be looking at people we can share that with that are in need, not spending only on ourselves. And I think those are all principles that Steve was, was talking about, but those are just Bible verses that hit me. Hey, don't be selfish with money. Look to be able to, to make something to share with others. Uh, be careful about what you see because that will lead you into spending and more debt and be content with what you have. Le- learn to live in the
2: lifestyle where you can live even below what you need to. And dad, as you were saying that, it, it, it and those verses and even some of what Steve said it reminded me so much of this is a lot of what Dave Ramsey has been saying for a lot of years like this is not complicated and you might disagree with you know if you're listening you might disagree with some of what Dave Ramsey does or doesn't say that's fine but the reality is this Dave Ramsey has made himself like a cajillionaire from telling people basic things like hey, don't spend money you don't have and, and, and try to pay off your debt and have a savings account and then and, and live generously, give money away. Like these are not complicated principles. And yet what what Steve pointed out is it's become a problem in America because we don't live our lives inside of the, the boundaries the Bible would give guidance for. And therefore, we've allowed the government to get so far outside of what is healthy. This is something that it's a problem. We have to definitely get in control for the federal government. But it means we have to start with ourselves of saying, let's make sure we do the right thing in our own lives with following this biblical guidance when it comes to money.
1: These principles apply to us personally. They apply to us as a nation. Uh, God's principles are not only right, they work best. You know, I know we say it all the time here on the program, but whether it's economics or it's how we treat our family or how we form our society, how we treat our neighbors, God's ways work best and they're right. So it's both of those things. Thanks for listening today, folks. You've been listening to Wild builders
2: Stand undivided forever.